Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this Monday edition of Fangraphs Audio is our managing editor, is Fangraphs managing editor Dave Cameron. And in what follows, Dave Cameron, as per usual, analyzes all baseball. Specifically, things you might or definitely will hear discussed in what follows. Some brief notes by Dave Cameron on former Mariners draft pick, Mariners unsigned draft pick Ryan Stanek, who the Mariners took in the third round of the 2010 draft. Stanek pitches tonight for Arkansas at 9 p.m. Eastern against South Carolina in both teams' second game of the College World Series. Cameron and I also discuss a piece he's written today, Monday, on the continuing dominance of the American League during interleague play. That, of course, is the American League over the National League, not some distant third league you've never heard of. We speculate as to why that might be, what it might mean for the future of those two leagues. Additionally, Cameron looks at some teams that are most in need of help as they consider making a playoff push in the latter half of the season. Two of the Detroit Tigers' three outfielders, for example, have negative wars this season. Delman Young is one of them. Why hasn't he become the player that many thought he would? And how good would he be if he had the play discipline of even a four-year-old? Cameron speculates on that. He speculates on more than that in this edition of Fangraphs Audio, featuring managing editor Dave Cameron, which begins right now. the College World Series at all? I have not watched any of the College World Series. And does it does it interest you? Um, it's kind of in the same vein of, like, I, if I had copious amounts of free time, and uh, then I would watch. But, you know, if it's not something that I am actively avoiding out of non-interest and just twiddling my thumbs doing other things, but I guess I just don't have that much time to watch TV. Right. So here's a question. Like, to what to what degree does, for example, being able to see Mike Zanino, catcher for University of Florida, uh, being able to see him in you know in what is likely his most competitive you know the most competitive context in which he's played to date, um, and then add to that the the fact that it's being played on probably the best cameras he'll play in front of you know before he's a major leaguer. Uh, I mean, does that interest you at all, or is it just like that information at this point is not does not is is just not that important to you? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. I mean, uh, I don't know. Camera angles for hitters isn't like a huge deal to me. Right. Uh, so the, the camera angles for Zanino aren't something that I'm overly concerned about. I mean, I just think like you know, I've seen Zanino play. Uh, I have a general idea of what he is. I'm probably not going to change my mind based on what he does in the World Series. At least hopefully not in any way. Uh, you know, so. Um, it's not that it's not interesting to me. It's just not interesting enough to cancel out the other things I'm doing with my time. Right. And then what about uh, – so we also have Ryan Stanek going tonight. He's a right-hander for Arkansas. Um, uh, a former Mariner draft pick at high school. I think they took him in the third round and didn't pay him enough to go to college and got good. Right. Yeah so, they, yeah, so they drafted him in the third round, and it, it looks, uh, I would say, over 50% possible that he'll be going in the first round this coming draft. Hot, hot. High first round. High yeah, first I round. Think they, uh, it would have been nice if they would have given him what he was. Right. Um, now he hasn't he hasn't looked as good of late, like his uh, maybe the last month and a half. However, he does throw his fastball uh, in the mid 90s, or can throw his fastball in the mid 90s, can sit in the mid 90s, um, and has uh, two uh, pretty excellent breaking balls. 
nice repertoire for a pitcher. Right. Yeah. Those those are good things to have. Um, and he's pitching tonight. I don't know if that interests you or not. Or is it is it a uh, as a Mariners writer and fan, is it just painful to see what you could have had? No, I mean, you know, I think everyone, like, the, there's, like, millions of stories out there about, oh, we drafted this guy out of high school, and then he went to college, and, you know, he became awesome, and you can't necessarily, uh, you know, assume that the development path would have been the same, or, you just you know, so, uh, you know, I would, I, there would be no bitterness in my heart watching a Spanik succeed. You, um, what, what was he throwing, um, what was he throwing out of high school? I think it was more like uh, 89 to 93, like he was a uh, you know, projectable right-hander, but he wasn't sitting in the mid-90s regular. What do we know about, um, because we know, like, like basically as soon as, um, or generally speaking, as soon as most pitchers become professionals, or certainly at a certain age, their velocity just declines. Uh, I mean, you know, taking the whole population to account, the you know velocity declines, like what, like a half mile per hour, a mile per hour every year? Yeah, something like that. And I think we see a bigger drop-off right when a guy goes from high school or college to the pros because now they're throwing every five days instead of once a week. And, um, you know, their incentive to throw as hard as they can on every pitch changes. So we see pretty significant velocity drops, like when a guy's pro career starts. Right. And so but what is the – in terms of the growth of velocity or the increase in velocity? Because obviously a 12-year-old isn't going to throw as hard as an 18-year-old. But do we have a sense of, like you said, Stanek was throwing maybe 89 to 93. That seems to have increased in college. Um, do we have a sense of when it peaks? or when? And I guess that's balanced against, you're right, a player becoming pro because then his arm is receiving more use. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, what do we mean by peak velocity? Do we mean like peak sustained velocity over seven or eight innings every five days? Because that probably peaks when you're, you know, 19 to 21. Uh, but that's not what we see when a guy goes to college because he's pitching once a week. And, you know, so um, I think, you know, observed velocity versus sustainable every five days velocity is a different thing. So what we see is guys throwing harder in college than they do in the pros. It doesn't mean they couldn't throw uh, harder if they were on the same ro- throwing regimen in the pros. It's just the context changes. Okay. Well, that's good. That was just uh, some curiosities I had about that. I'm excited. Um, I'll tell the listener I'm excited to watch Ryan Stanek throw tonight. I've never seen him throw. Well, I've seen uh, some video online um, going back to the Watch ESPN archives. But in any case, a legitimate pitching prospect uh, throwing tonight in the College World Series at 9 p.m. versus South Carolina, who, despite what appears to be a dearth of future Major League talent, are just beat everybody? Yeah. You know, it's amazing how uh, good college players don't necessarily translate to the pro level every time, but South Carolina appears to have a lot of good college players. Right. Um, so anyway, that's going on. Another thing that will be on TV tonight or will continue to be on television tonight and I guess throughout the week is interleague baseball, Dave Cameron. Um, yep. Apparently we're entering week two, and this is the last we'll see of it um, for 2012 and, and the last we'll see of it in its form because things will change next year as Houston moves over to the American League. Yeah, and you know I think the, at this point we're basically – three-fourths of the way through the interleague schedule. Uh, they put 168 of the 252 games, so um, you know, that's three-fifths, or some fraction north of 50% of the interleague schedule. So, um, you know, I think we at this point we have a pretty decent idea that, once again, the American League is, you know, just a lot better than the National League. Right, and when we say they're a lot better, what, what do you mean precisely? Is it just a question of run scoring and run prevention? Well, I mean, you know, better at winning. 
the things that go into winning baseball games, the American League is better at. I think, you know, there's just a talent gap. Uh, you know, whether it's a cyclical thing or there's some structural issues regarding to the franchises or, you know, the rules or something is, you know, up for debate. But, uh, you know, there's certainly better talent in the American League. You know, I think overall, uh, if you lined up, uh, the best players in the American League and the best players in the National League and had them play, you know, not now all-star game, but actual games that meant something over a significant sample size, the American League would just win more often because they just have better players. Um, and it, you mentioned it could be cyclical. It, uh, do we have a sense of the last time that the National League had this sort of advantage? Well, the National League was dominant in the 70s, for sure. I mean, like, uh, so if you go back, you know, a good stretch of the way in the 70s, the National League was destroyed the American League in the World Series and the All-Star Game and was clearly better. We didn't have really play back then, but, um, it, you know, the best teams from those eras were definitely National League teams. Uh, it seems to have switched somewhere in the mid-90s, and, uh, you know, so for the last 10 or 15 years or so, the American League has been the best team, or been, been the best league. Um, so the cycles can, you know, be pretty long and sustained, uh, I think, you know, partly due to management of uh, franchises having an impact and um, you know, as we see the National League teams, the high revenue ones getting smarter. I think that, you know, with the Cubs and Mets and Dodgers potentially getting reborn as, uh, you know, actual contenders instead of teams that light money on fire, uh, you know, the National League probably make a comeback. Now, as a, uh, from my point of view, I understand what you mean by saying that the Cubs are probably getting smarter. See, um, um, I've seen Jed Hoyer, et cetera. I can understand what you mean by the Mets getting smarter with Sandy Alderson. Um, and the team he's, he's assembled there. Now, are the are the Dodgers getting smarter, or are they just getting richer? Uh, both. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. They're definitely getting richer, uh, but they're also getting smarter. I think every team we every time we've seen uh, an ownership change in baseball, especially now with venture capital firms getting into the mix and you know the the groups led by Magic Johnson, the BOP team is essentially a VC fund. Uh, these people are very heavy in analytics. You don't become a venture capitalist on gut feels and just, you know, uh, going by who looks good in jeans. I mean, venture capitals are uh, very, very data-oriented, and so I think you're going to see the new ownership um, pushing for increased analytics in the front office, and I think, you know, the Dodgers are already heading in that direction. They, you know, they might not give as much talk as some of the other teams, but they have a statistical analysis department. They've got guys doing number crunching. Ned Cuddy might not listen to them all the time or make decisions that they would agree with, but I think the Dodgers are certainly... Um, dabbling in data that they never have before, and under new ownership, I expect that would only increase. Now, at this point, um, you know, like as you mentioned, for example, most recently in Houston, we saw uh, we saw a new ownership group come in, and we saw um, you know Ed Wade fired almost immediately, uh, and replaced by Jeff Lunau, um, who is talented in a number of different ways and um, experienced in a number of different ways, but certainly one of those ways um, is with regard to his comfort. You know, um, comfort with uh, it, analytics. Um, it, it's it's maybe a slightly different situation. Or I'm curious how it's a slightly different situation now with Los Angeles because um, you know Magic Johnson et al have bought the team. Um, you may or may not see at that point a, a change in the GM. However, the Dodgers and you have to say it's surprising um, appear to have the best record in the major leagues right now. Uh, yeah, they do have the best record. They don't just appear to. That's an actual fact. Right, right. Okay, that's fine. But the well, I guess I was allowing for the exception that if the Yankees won their next two games, they would have an identical record. That's that's what I was allowing for, Dave Cameron. 
Right. If things happen in the future, that will change the facts in the future. But in the okay, present, so the they're good, the Dave Cameron. Now, all right, so they have the best record, which, it should be said, is not necessarily the same as being the best team. Right, yeah. I mean, I don't think anyone thinks the Dodgers are actually the best team in baseball. And, you know, part of the fact they have the best record is they play in the National League. So, you know, stick them in the American League and make them play Texas and the Yankees. They probably would have the best record in baseball any more. So, um, but, you know, I think the Dodgers are better than people expected, especially given Matt Kemp's injuries and, you know, time off the field. Um, and, they, you know, I think when people look back at their offseason, uh, they were probably unfairly ridiculed for a lot of their moves. You know, they gave Chris Capuano a two-year deal and Aaron Harang a two-year deal and Mark Ellis a two-year deal and a lot of these veteran stopgap types and people were piling on it because for whatever reason this, this whole community doesn't really like, uh, you know, they don't, they're much more into the Stars and the Scrubs roster philosophy, which is not what the Dodgers did at all. And they kind of missed the fact that the Dodgers ended up getting pretty good players over the winter and they rounded out the roster pretty nicely. And so, um, you know, I think the Dodgers are probably a little underrated heading into the season. And uh, now we're seeing that they've actually got a fairly competitive team on the field. Well, I, I will be uh, the first to admit, well, probably not the first to admit. I'm sure hundreds of others have done it. Um, but I will be one of the people to admit that I, I had little faith in, in the Dodgers' ability. I mean, Chris Capuano actually is a decent signing. Uh, and, yeah. and furthermore, um, I, I think just giving playing time to A.J. Ellis, we didn't necessarily know that it would have the, the, the huge positive effect that it has, because I believe, if I'm not mistaken, he's leading the team in war at the moment. Yeah, I mean, what he's done has been ridiculous. You couldn't have predicted this. But the idea that they went into the season with him as their starting catcher instead of, you know, some retread or bringing back Rod Roth or something was certainly an upgrade. Right, yeah, and we couldn't have known, and, and, you know, it's probably not, you know, we don't know. I mean, if you had said that A.J. Ellis was going to be a three-win player over the course of the season, I think I think it would have been, everyone would have been happy with that. Yeah, right, and anyway, he's done that in two months. Right, he's done that in two change. months. Right. He's been pretty good. He's been pretty good. Um, but, yeah, I was, I was skeptical. Now, at this point, though, uh, is there a reason? Uh, it would it be harder for the for the Dodgers to get rid of Ned Coletti, and or is there a reason for the Dodgers to get rid of Ned Coletti? Well, it's certainly harder. So I mean, I think you know, with the Astros, uh, new ownership took over and fired the GM because the team was awful, and so it was you know it's normal. Like the team is bad, the GM gets fired. Ned Coletti, uh, you know, as much as we might not agree with a lot of his decision making, is in charge of a team that's in first place and has the best record in baseball. You can't fire a guy unless he like. You know, if found in bed with a dead child or something. I mean, there's, you know, the, for on-field baseball reasons, you can't fire Ned Cloudy right now, uh, even if you'd want to, which, you know, maybe you could argue that you should. Um, but I think, you know, with the people in place in the Dodgers front office, he's not the only guy making decisions, and uh, it's not so dysfunctional that they're, you know, signing very Zito to 25-year contracts. So, um, you know, is the Dodgers front office, like, perfect, perfectly optimized? Probably not. You need to fire Ned Cloudy in order to, uh, overhaul things, uh, probably not. You no, know, are there instances? In the, the, um, I'm sort of putting you on the spot here, but you'd probably know better than other people um, uh, what the answer to this question is, if there is one. Uh, can you think of GMs who have adapted? It, maybe we, maybe we, uh, we could consider the fact that Ned Coletti, uh, and again, this is this is wild speculation, but at some level is adapting um, to. To the current market, um, maybe he's not, but maybe he is. But um, I guess, to my mind, what I'm interested in is: can you think of GMs who have adapted, who have maybe had a more traditional outlook, um, but have taken new information and, and been excited about it, or at least done it, perhaps reluctantly at first, but but have eventually used it to their advantage? 
Well, I think Kevin Towers is an example of a guy who, you know, he was a scout background, didn't come up as a, you know, Ivy League numbers guy, and has embraced analytics to a degree. I mean, he's probably not, you know, quite as in tune with them as, you know, a, a Billy Bean or, you know, someone like that. But he, you know, Towers is definitely a numbers-oriented GM, uh, and he's had success, you know, building bullpens on the cheap and doing things that, you know, the statistical community is in favor of. And he's not a guy who has, you know, a, a strong statistical pedigree from a an Ivy League school. I mean, he was a scout first, and, you know, I think he's a guy who adapted as he saw new information coming in and found it to be useful. Right. I mean, it does, it does seem to me as though there would be a huge incentive for for someone, you know, who's currently a gem, but, but um, maybe not entirely uh, sympathetic to new trends, whatever they are. Um, because he's not used to them. I mean, and generally speaking, you know, um, it does t- it does take time for people to adapt, especially when they're not being forced to. But it also seems like it would be it's good for job security or good for uh, you know one's resume at some level. Yeah, and I think you know a lot of that adaptation probably takes place before they ever become a GM. So a lot of these guys were getting hired as GMs, uh, probably started out either as stat guys or scout guys and got training in the other to try and become more well-balanced. And that's really what teams are looking for now is a guy who, you know, uh, understands the analytics and can make decisions based on logic and facts, but also has some talent evaluation skills and has been on the road and has gone and seen high school players and, you know, kind of understands that aspect of the game too. I don't think people want one or the other. And so, um, you know, what we're probably seeing is GMs being hired who have one background or the other, but then have added to their toolkit before they became a GM. Um. Uh, just to finish up the the interleague uh, question, um, we know that the American League I- is better. We have some sense. Th- there's there's a lot to suggest that they're better. Um, I guess uh, what is there anything to be gained from that knowledge, or is it just a fact um, to to let everyone know right now the American League is better? Well, I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's any actionable thing. I mean, there's not much that actually can do to make themselves better in season, uh, you know, versus, and it doesn't totally matter. I mean, you know, part of the different league structure is that you only have to beat the team in your division in order to make the playoffs. And if you make the playoffs, it's really, you know, all bets are off at that point. So, um, you know, for a team like the Dodgers, they might understand that they're not as good as the Rangers, but they shouldn't really care either. I mean, they only have to be better than the Giants and the Diamondbacks. Uh, they're already better than the Padres and Rockies, who are awful. So, you know, uh, I think for them, they don't necessarily uh, need to care. I mean, they can say, okay, we're we're the better of the inferior league. Uh, that's fine. We'll see in the World Series. Right. And, I, I mean, we've seen some examples, right? We saw – I can think of two Cardinals teams from, like, the last six yeah. years. Who right. I mean, There was a Cardinals team that won – that won the they World. They were like 80, 83 and 80, 79, and they won the World Series. They were 83 and 79, and not like in the AL East either. Like they were 83 right, and 79. Central. They were a very mediocre team who turned it on down the stretch. And they got healthy. They were a better team at the end of the year than they were at the start of the year, but that was not a juggernaut. They won the World Series. Right, and then last year they only barely made the playoffs. Yep. Um, and again, barely making the playoffs out of the NL Central yep. would suggest that that's not the best team in the majors, and yet. Right. They won, and they looked very good in the World Series. Yeah, I mean, I think it was another case where the team that finished the year was better than the team that started the year, but they weren't, you know, you put them in the American League, they wouldn't have the playoffs. Like, they weren't good enough to keep up with the American League teams over the long haul. They were good enough to play with them for a week. Hey, as an aside with regard to the Cardinals, uh, David Frias, well, I guess uh, now I'm looking at his stats now. It seems as though he had started off the season very good, he was, but perhaps he was, he's cooled he off. Was a, um, he was a 
monster in April. He was bad in May, and he's been pretty good again lately. Okay, all right. Um, well, now here, so we have another question. Um, as uh, we sort of enter that time, I think the last time you and I talked, we sort of looked at the, the baseball calendar in the three distinct sections, right? So the, the first two months of the season um, are where sort of teams are evaluate where they're at. Um, the next two months, June and July, are where teams make changes um, based on those evaluations. So if uh, so, good teams um, that are looking to get better, uh, you know, t- with a view to our playoff run, are maybe trying to make additions. Um, teams that are that realize that they will not be making the playoffs or have a limited chance of doing so um, will make alterations um, w- with a view toward strengthening themselves for the future. Uh, and then, there, of course, there are some teams in between that may or may not have a chance. Um, uh, we've uh, Last week, we wrote, um, a bunch of our authors wrote pieces on needs uh, that teams have. Uh, for you, what are the sort of uh, most glaring glaring needs the teams have and the teams that could be most improved um, uh, by one or two moves? Well, I think if you look at Detroit, their outfield is uh, uh, in need of help. I mean, you know, Del- Brennan Bosch has been bad. Delvin Young is bad. Uh, and, you know, even the guys that called up Andy Dirks, who's, you know, filling in playing nicely, got hurt. Um, so I think, that, you know, they could certainly use an outfielder in the infield defense is atrocious. I mean, uh, realistically, they should just give up on the uh, defensive alignment that they're running, move Cabrera back to first and outfield or DH, but they're not going to do that. So uh, taking that off the table, they could at least improve their outfield a little bit uh, and potentially add a pitcher because uh, their rotation needs some help, even with Doug Fister coming back. So um, I think the Tigers are a team that should certainly be looking to upgrade. And then the White Sox at third base, I and mean, that is just a, maybe the biggest hole of any team in baseball, especially a contender. Um, they've, you know, trying Orlando Hudson there after Brent Morrell fell, failed, and. Uh, you know, I think they need a real third baseman, especially to um, considering their place in the standings. They shouldn't just say, okay, well, we weren't expecting to 10, so let's just keep uh, running sub-replacement level guys out at third base. I mean, the reality is they're a playoff contender at this point, and they've got a, a glaring weakness at third base. They should go do something about it. Okay, yeah, and we should note, um, especially the corner outfield uh, for, for the Detroit Tigers, uh, uh, according to Fangraph's War, uh, Delman Young is uh, currently at uh, just a – Point one wins below replacement. Um, Which is basically where he's been for most of his career. Right. He's basically replacement. And that's not even uh, – it should be noted, too, that his defensive rating per UZR, which, of course, uh, we must note, um, is uh, you know a small sample, blah, 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 even if we discount that entirely because it's 0.4 right now. So it's he's essentially been, per UZR, an average, uh, average um, corner outfielder. Um, it's his offense. It's his offense. Yeah. Um, he's hitting 18% below league average, and if you have a corner uh, corner outfielder doing that, that's bad. Yeah, I mean, Delvin Young is one of those guys who is just a classic underachiever. Uh, he doesn't improve at all since he was 18. He has the exact same skill set he does as a teenager, except now he's slower. Uh, you know, he's just an aggressive hack with moderate power with the ball on the ground a lot, and that's just not a very good corner outfielder. Right. Now, could you, could you explain... Um, because we uh, we like the work that Baseball America does, obviously, uh, and they do important work for the baseball community and you know releasing prospect lists and these are you know uh, certainly these are these are uh, lists in, in which people are very interested, especially you know uh, say five ten years ago if you were a Rays fan uh, or whenever Delman Young was a prospect, you know you look at those say oh we have uh, one of the top prospects in the game and Delman Young very excited about that. What 
What was it that was maybe difficult to see about Delman Young, who I think for at least one year was the top prospect in baseball? What was the thing that would have been difficult to see then that we know about Delman Young now? Uh, so I think the main factor in Delman Young, I'll think of it, you never know the power that he was supposed to have. I mean, if Delman Young could hit, you know, 35, 40 home runs a year, he would be overrated but still effective. So, I mean, you can be, uh, you, you don't have to control the strike zone in order to be a good player. Alfonso Soriano, you know, had some really nice years in the middle of his career and was a complete nutter hack who couldn't hit a curveball. Um, but he could hit the ball a really long way if he made a mistake. So the ability to punish mistakes made Soriano a good player despite the same flaws that Young has. Young just doesn't punish mistakes, and he has those little flaws. So, you know, I think when you look at guys like Young and Soriano and these guys who um, have terrible play discipline, you know, Corey Patterson's another guy who was, a, you know, an epic prospect bust because of his play discipline. Um, these are guys who, you know, you expected to improve in their secondary skills while also maintaining, you know, enough of their physical talents in order to be good. In Soriano's case, it worked. In Patterson and Young's case, it didn't. Now, here's, a, here's an interesting thing. So we say, now, would you, w- is it a possibility that for Delman Young, perhaps a reason that his power hasn't developed has something to do with the fact that his plate discipline hasn't developed? Because he's swinging at pitches that he wouldn't be able to hit as hard, um, or that he, that he wouldn't be able to hit as hard you know, if, uh, if they were, say, down the middle, for example. And add to that, that now he puts himself into accounts where he's forced to swing at pitches that are more of a pitcher's pitch than a hitter's pitch. Is that a possibility? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, if the question was, would Delman Young in his current form be a better player if he had better plate selection, the answer is yes. Uh, Delman Young would be better if he didn't have the approach of a three-year-old. But, you know, <laughs> uh, there are guys with the approach of a three-year-old who have enough physical skills to make it work. And I think that was kind of the understanding that Delman Young, you know, regardless of his plate discipline at the time, uh, had the physical skills to be an elite power hitter and to be like a, you know an impact corner outfielder even if he never drew a walk. And uh, unfortunately, he's just not that guy. So listen, on the other side of this, I, I always think of, of a player like Kevin Euclid, or uh, not a player like Kevin Euclid. I think of Kevin Euclid himself, um, who, as a as a prospect, and you can even say prospect in quotes, I guess, was known for taking walks, right? Was known yep. for having extraordinary plate discipline. And we've seen players like that fail, right? Like, you know, there's Absolutely. kind of a long list of players who have great discipline in the minors, but do, you know, uh, don't pan out. Um, you yep. know, Ben Grieve and uh, Jeremy, uh, um, who am I thinking of? Jeremy someone. Hermita. Jeremy Hermita, precisely. Thank you. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, there could be a version of that player, Kevin Euclid in this particular case, who plays his way into power, not because he has great raw power, but because he's always going to be swinging at pitches that are the most hittable pitches for him. It's true, but I think there's no doubt that Kevin Euclid has added a lot of power. I mean, when he was in college, he was a doubles guy at best. And in the minors, you know, I compared him to Dave Magadis as a prospect. I mean, that's kind of what he looked like in the minor leagues. He was not a home run hitter, even back when he had really great play discipline. Uh, he's the guy who just got stronger. And so, you know, it's one of those things that's, um, a little bit tough about scouting is, uh, you know, power is one of those things that doesn't develop at the same age for everyone. Not accusing Kevin Euclid of anything, there have been outside factors that have assisted players in power development in, uh, you know, unusual ways. But it's like, oh man, this guy developed power at 28 because he had good play discipline or because he was taking something. We don't really know. Right. Now listen, uh, back to the conversation of college baseball. You know, Dave Cameron, that I have a, a that I will sometimes, I am prone to fetishizing slightly uh, or becoming yeah. very excited about 
non-prospect players. Zach McPhee. <laughs> Zach McPhee, who it it uh, needs to be said is not necessarily having a field day. I believe I believe a ball right now. Yeah, it's shocking. Shocking that Zach McPhee is not tearing up pro ball. Uh, shocking development. But I had developed a new interest in a new player, uh, Sherman Johnson, third baseman for Florida State. Okay. Uh, second in the nation in walks. Did hit a home run the other day. Did hit a home run the other day. Plays a cat-like third base. Uh, and like I said, second in the nation in walks. Um, and uh, I will submit I will submit he's a candidate to play his way into some power. Will you Will you – Accept that submission. Sure. I mean, I think, uh, you know, there are certainly guys with that skill set who made it work. Uh, you know, Benzo Ritz found power out of the middle of nowhere. It can happen. I wouldn't write off anybody who doesn't have power and say, uh, you know, if they're 5'4 and 140 pounds, like back with feet, maybe I would write them off. But, you know, if they have a, you know, normal athlete's build uh, <laughs> and they're not hitting for power, I would say that, you know, it's possible that they could add it down the line. Uh, the difference in possible and probable it should be noted, though, and, you know, at this point, I think we need to come up with some kind of name for your uh, fetish and dump. Um, yeah. You know, kind of serial baiting. Like, or you're kind of like a prospect slut. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. I, I don't know what precisely the name is, but but prospect slut, I do not care for. Okay. I well, prefer... I bet you that that handle is probably available on Twitter if you wanted to take it. I um I do know that I am um so I've been doing some reading about dopamine recently and um. Okay. I do think that some of my behavior would be regarded as novelty-seeking. Um, dopamine um, it, it affects different people in different ways. This is not this is not not, not a great uh, revelation. Uh, but there right. are some people who have a sort of higher threshold for feeling the effects of dopamine, and for them, uh, they need they need to to find greater novelty. Now, this also happens to be people uh, describes people who are. Um, uh, addicts and uh, alcoholics and this sort of behavior, right. or uh, it would also seem to describe hipsters, right? Like they always want to be the first one to know about everything. Uh, yeah, well, yes and no. I would say it's an interesting question, actually. You raised it's just sort of like sociological one. I think because um, to the, to a great degree, there's a lot that's calculated about hipsters. Maybe like you could say like the people who are sort of actually at the front lines of anything really are they are interested in like in, you know, qualitatively new experiences. But I think there's a lot that's calculated about the hipster look. I mean, would you, would you agree with that? Uh, maybe. I will say that I've never seen a statistical breakdown of hipsters, mainly because I see them run the other way. <laughs> right, right. But in this particular case, what I'm saying is when it comes to baseball, generally speaking, and right now with regard to prospects, I do think that there is a question of novelty seeking. Now, I think that correlates to the pleasure I'm receiving. I don't know if it correlates at all to the quality of the prospects. Because, right. for example, watching Cliff Lee pitch, I would suggest that Cliff Lee, there's very little novelty in his approach. Like, he is like he is like an economist. He, he is an efficiency. He's he an exercise in efficiency, Cliff Lee. Watching him pitch is fantastic. There's no doubt about it. Okay, Cliff well, Lee this is, is where you and I differ, though, because I actually don't care to watch him pitch. You're crazy. No, I am crazy. Well, or or you're crazy, or or we just have different differently structured brains. You like? No, him, no, but, I, I'm not going to go for a gray area. I'm just going to call you crazy for not enjoying Clifford. Okay, well, I I respect you as good. And if I were a GM and my main goal was winning baseball games, I would want Cliffley on my team. I, I mean, what do you not like about 75% strikes? No, it, well, that's that's going to be better. I would bring it because 
because his like the standard deviation of excitement in his starts is limited, right? Like he's always Cliff Lee. Like he's always like he's based on economy, he's based on efficiency. He says, okay, I'm going to throw like a cutter on the inside corner right now, and either the batter is going to swing and miss or he's going to make weak contact. I mean, is that a pretty fair way to discuss? To discuss? Well, I mean, it seems pretty good. He's got a pretty nasty curveball, and, and you know, know, the curveball. The curveball is the most exci- is Cliff Lee and his most exciting because he doesn't throw it. I think he's increased the usage on it in recent years, right? Uh, yeah, when he was in Seattle, he actually decreased it. I think and went more with the cutter. So the cutter kind of replaced the curveball a little bit. He, like when he came up through the minors, he was known as a curveball guy. And then we revamped his delivery. But I think the, the cutters kind of replaced the curveball in some of those pitches. I think his curveball is his most. Is his most aesthetically pleasing pitch? Do you, aesthetically, yeah, right. I mean, it's huge. Yeah. So like it's this big breaking curveball that goes from the 300 level to your knees. Right. Yeah, and maybe it's not the most effective. I will say, I mean, slow curveballs are usually very aesthetically pleasing. They're also, when they don't work, they can get crushed. Yes, and yeah. I think that's part of why he throws it last. Is Cliff Lee used to have a significant home run problem. Right. Can you think of a pitcher? And so this is the last thing I'll. Um, we're, we've passed the half-hour threshold, which is when you, which is when you become v- visibly or audibly tired with the podcast. Um, yeah, well, I started that way today. No, yeah, that's fine. Could you think of a pitcher who is? So we mentioned like like the curveball is aesthetically pleasing to to watch. Can you think of a pitcher who's aesthetically and who's aesthetically whose aesthetic capabilities and his sort of like pitching effectiveness? Are most in tune, or are most like correlated? Uh, Daisuke Matsuzaka. He is horrible and unbelievably <laughs> hard to watch. Like, I, I, I don't want to ever have to watch Daisuke Matsuzaka play baseball ever again. Yeah, I would say probably that's true. Like, especially at the bottom. Like, if you look at the bottom of the list, like, I guess J.A. Happ has been okay this year, but he's not really that fun to watch, and he gets crushed. Jason Marquis. Jason Marquis this year. Is neither, yeah. neither fun to watch. He, he just uh, threw a shutout at the Mariners the other day. That does not prove that he's that he's ineffective. <laughs> no, absolutely not. He came into the game with an ERA of like eight. Right. Um, no, but like so, like Verlander, I would submit with that curveball he throws. Um, Kenley Jansen's cut fastball. I was. I think Kenley Jansen's cut fastball is probably one of the most exciting pitches to watch. It's the only pitch he really throws. And he has like he has a crazy swinging strike rate on it. Right. I mean, there's certainly guys who are who are good and always exciting. Uh, I think for me though, the guys were the, the most line up between their watchability and their goodness. They're all at the bottom of the spectrum. It's all the really slow working, terrible guys. I mean, you know, the Jeff Supans. I mean, just the guys who are bad and takes forever between pitches mm-hmm. are the guys that I want to like institute a rule that they're. Band to it, you know, uh, playing Korea or something. Well, do you, do you think though that the reason that they're that it's taking them so slow between pitches is they're they're just trying to bore the hitter? Well, I think maybe they just know what's coming and they're just like, I don't want to throw this pitch; it's going to go really far. <laughs> they're just reluctant. They're, they're, they're correct. <laughs> they're just trying to. They're just trying to prolong their major league career. Yeah, right, exactly. Let's let's not uh, speed up my exit from this game. I'm going to stand here on the mound and not pitch, so I can <laughs> remain on the field. Do you think, like Dickens per word, they're getting paid per per second or per minute on the mound, or at least that's, I think that's they, they certainly act that way. <laughs> Although Josh Beckett, who's been very effective, you know, I mean, not been the most effective, but has been a very good pitcher. He works very slowly. 
Yeah, yes. there are good pitchers who work slowly, uh, but there are also bad pitchers who work slowly, and they should all be assassinated. Okay. But you still don't – I'm going to ask one more time, just to belabor the point. Pitchers who are both aesthetically pleasing and also terribly or ruthlessly effective. Uh, well, you know, I think Strasburg would be in that category. Yeah, right? that's true. I mean, yeah. you know, it's hard to not watch Steven Strasburg pitch and enjoy it. Um, you know, Clayton Kershaw when he's on. I mean, you know, all the good pitchers. Yeah. So, you know, David Price, uh, you know, name a good pitcher and it's probably in that class. Well, I did. I said Cliff Lee and my submission was that he's not. Okay, well, I think you're completely wrong about that. When Cliff Lee and Felix Fernandez were on the same pitching staff, I far more enjoyed watching Cliff Lee. Uh, Cliff Lee made Felix Fernandez unfun for half of the year. Yeah, although I would also say, watching the Mariners on that camera, and I just made a couple of gifts for you, uh, um, and I don't know what it's for, and maybe I shouldn't have even mentioned that, I don't know what it's for, but um, it was it was Tim Lincecum on the Seattle camera, and it's basically, I mean, you needed them to show location, but for me, they're... I can't stand that camera. Yeah, it's not the best. Yeah. It's yeah. You just look at the space between like the pitcher's body and then the catcher's glove, just like an an apparent like the way it appears on the screen. It's just, you're, I mean, you're basically you feel like you're watching from left center field. Well, you kind of are. Yeah. Yeah, you are. Right. Yeah. All right. You have anything to add to this podcast, Cameron? This was a good one. I thought. Uh yeah right maybe we should. Uh... Do good ones more often. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm off to watch uh, Euro, the Euro 2012 Cup. You apparently have some work to do. Yeah. I mean, uh, during the middle of the day, I'm going to work for the company that pays my salary. <laughs> well, we'll see how that works for both of us. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think you're still going to get paid and you're going to do less work than I am. So maybe you are smarter than I get. <laughs> All right. Well, to be fair... I, I post uh, I publish posts that no one reads on the weekend. Uh, well, you publish posts that no one reads on the weekdays too. <laughs> oh man, you're you're on today. You're on point. Well, let's, uh, let's have some adult conversation after I finish recording. But for the meantime, thanks for thanks for bringing it today, Dave Cameron. Yeah, consider it brought. All right, that is Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Zestuli. And, and Dave Cameron has analyzed baseball. There it is. Bye.